0: Ford Motor Company has pulled off what is nothing short of a miraculous turnaround. You already know the story of how the company had the foresight to go out and borrow the money it needed to restructure itself. And when the big collapse came, Ford was prepared. And now it's reaping the benefits of its strategy. It reported net profits of close to $5 billion in the first half of this year alone. But where does the company go from here? What about its high level of debt? What about having the highest labor costs in the auto industry? What about the fact that it's so far behind its major competitors in China? Well, to get a better idea of where the company is headed, my special guest today is Lewis Booth, the chief financial officer of the Ford Motor Company. And because there's so much to talk about, this is just going to be part one. Part two of this interview will run next week. Joining me on my journalist panel is Bill Vlasic of the New York Times and former editor of Car and Driver magazine, Chabachetta. Don't go away. We'll be back in a moment to learn more about the next phase of Ford's plans and where it plans to go from here. Visit our website for even more great content all week long. Autoline Daily. John's Journal, podcasts, and even more. So click over and get your all-access pass to the automotive industry at autolinedetroit.tv. From our studios in the Motor City, this is Autoline. Here now is John McElroy. Welcome to this edition of Autoline Detroit, and our special guest today, of course, is Lewis Booth, the Chief Financial Officer of the Ford Motor Company. And Lewis, it's great to have you here on the set of Autoline. It's
1: good to be here, John. Thanks.
0: And also joining us this morning are Bill Vlasic with the New York Times and Chubba Chetda, now a freelancer, former editor in chief of Car and Driver magazine. I'm glad
2: you're giving me something to do, John.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Lewis. Uh, it's got to be a whole lot more fun being Chief Financial Officer of the Ford Motor Company these days, because now you're counting profits, and I'm just wondering, uh, my sense is the company's only just got going, and there's a lot of up for this company to grow right
1: now. Yeah, we, you know, just reported the second quarter. It was a, a very strong quarter, um, you know, we said at the time, well ahead of our expectations. Uh, so we're going to have a strong year this year, you know, good automotive profits, good profits from Ford Credit. Um, and and positive cash flow and we're going to have an even better year next year.
0: The thing that seems uh, so impressive to me is that all of Ford's business units, at least automotive ones, no matter where you look in the world right now, are profitable. How did you get it turned around in Europe when so many other mass manufacturers are struggling there?
1: Well a a combination of, of, you know, it's both revenue and cost, you know, that's that's how profit works. Um, We've got great products in in Europe and and, uh, we've been really working hard on the product lineup in the last uh, Five years in Europe, and and we've done a lot of structural cost reductions in Europe. And we started back in two thousand, you know, way ahead of of most of the industry. And we've continued to keep a very uh, close attention to our cost level in Europe. Uh, you know, there's still, frankly, too much capacity in Europe, and I think that's why some of our competitors are are losing money.
0: And of course, you're keenly aware of what's going on in Europe, having come from there and having run for of Europe as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, and. Uh, well, it's very nice to see them, see them doing well. Uh, I think we're, in general, a little worried about the European uh, economic uh, outlook. You know, Europe was uh, very proactive last year with scrappage programs, you know, they're equivalent of cash for clunkers. So actually, uh, despite the tough year, the, the industry levels last year were pretty good in Europe. They're gonna come off this year uh, somewhat, uh, particularly in the second half, we think. So that's, that's a bit of a concern for us. and. The European team is working very hard on on uh, making sure they continue to deliver the business.
3: Lewis, where do you see the uh, industry levels in the United States in the near term? It's been a slow recovery. Ford's been outperforming the market, but it's um, still uh, pretty depressed. Do we have any hope looking up soon?
1: Well, it, it's. I mean, it is recovering. I mean, uh, you know, last year was very depressed at ten point six million industry. The way we count it with medium and heavy trucks. Uh, this year, we're, we're expecting to be between 11 and a half and 12. Uh, I think the first half was just, just below 11 and a half, and, and uh, uh, July was at about 11 and a half. So we're, we're expecting to see uh, continued improvement, but very slow. Uh, and it's going to stay slow for, we think, some time.
2: I'm curious about the uh, product strategy. Uh, You're bringing over some of this great product from Europe. The Fiesta's just introduced. Uh, We've got the Focus coming in a little bit. But the problem with these vehicles has always been they're almost too good for the U.S. market, and consequently they're a little expensive. And sure enough, the Fiesta pricing is uh, fairly dear for that uh, segment in the U.S. How's that going to work? How are you going to either get people to buy them, or if you have to discount them, how are you going to make money on these premium products?
1: Well, I think things have changed a little bit. You know, First of all, Fiesta's competitively priced in its segment. Uh, in actual fact, in, in uh, the early orders, we're getting a very a strong demand for the, the higher specified series. So we're already seeing customers are actually, I think, looking for value rather than necessarily just sticker price. And uh, we, we, as people get more interested in small cars, uh, they don't want to trade off attributes. They still want cars that do everything they used to. And, you know, we expect them to, we expect to see customers coming into our showrooms and specifying cars pretty well. And and early indications are that's what they're going to do. Well, I'm glad to hear that,
2: but I'm almost a little surprised because, you know, two years ago we had the very expensive gas in the U.S. and we were well over $4 a gallon and American customers always get very interested in fuel economy. And when gas drops back into the twos, they amazingly rapidly lose interest in fuel economy and and whether gas prices are even going to come back so I, th- I think that's a great thing but i wonder if that can be sustained for the long term i mean
1: well the small car segment is is down a little uh versus you know the peak of 2008 but it's still i think it's the largest segment in in the industry still so uh, and and for us you know we were not participating fully in it we, we had focus we're going to have a a new and improved focus at the end of the year, but we didn't have a, a, you know, a B car, a, a Fiesta-sized car. So we think there's plenty of opportunity for us to to be into business that we weren't in before.
0: What's your sense though? Do Americans really truly want small cars, which they never have in the past? Not in big numbers. There's always going to be people who like it. Or are they going to gravitate that way because as the issue that Chubba just raised, Prices are going up. I mean, the the average transaction price in the United States right now is over twenty nine thousand dollars, and I think a lot of people are just buying small cars because that's what they can afford now.
1: Well, I think it. I think it's going to be a number of factors. Um, you know, our assumption is that, that over time fuel prices are going to go up continually. They'll, they'll spike up and down. You know, there'll be noise, but in general, they're going to be going up. So the the economic advantage of small cars is going to grow over time. Um, and clearly, uh, you know, in a stressed economic environment, um, sticker price does count. So I think there will be some segmentation due to economic circumstances. But, and, and I think the, the, you know, the last thing is, small cars are getting better and better. I mean, they aren't the trade-off that, that perhaps they once were. And I think there's the, there are a number of people who once they get into a small car, will be very happy with what they've got, like the fuel economy, like the the cost of ownership equation, and and stay there.
2: Are are these Fiesta premium prices going to encroach on some other cars in the sense that you've got this premium price point for the current Fiesta, the new Focus will be another high-quality car with lots of content and presumably will be priced above Fiesta, it almost puts it on top of fusion. So how do you resolve that situation in the future? Or, or, or does that mean the fusion has to get more expensive, which doesn't seem like a satisfactory
1: uh, <laughs> uh, way to fix it? Well, I, I, you know, I, I would quibble a little bit with, with, uh, with your comment about premium price. I think we're competitively priced. We have opportunities for people to specify their cars quite well and, and therefore uh, pay you know a higher price, but but you know the leading Fiesta is is on the nail with its leading competition, mm. um, and and it's it's then you know as it always is it's the customer's choice of how they want to specify the car, um, and yes I think we will see with both uh, Focus and you know next generation Fusion we'll see a continued uh, effort to improve the value of our products, and you know we saw even with the with the. 2010 model year fusion that a, a much better product resulted in uh, customers actually wanting a, a higher average mix of the vehicles, so more highly specified cars than, than we'd previously been achieving because they they saw that the way we'd specified the car was, equipped the car the way they wanted to, to it to be equipped and they saw it as value.
3: Hmm. Uh, Lewis, is, is Ford still gaining um, new customers based on consumers who are uncomfortable with the government's role in the GM and Chrysler bailouts. Um, I know you've done a lot of research on that and I'm wondering if that's, if that's growing, is it, is it sort of peaked, uh, is this a permanent thing for you?
1: I, I, it's hard to tell exactly uh, how long this effect is going to last. I don't, I don't think actually we win any customers because of um, that piece of history. I think we have had the opportunity to get a lot more customers into our showrooms, people who want to come and see Ford because you know, we're perceived as different to to our domestic competitors. I think the product has been the reason that we're seeing our, our share improve. But I think the real opportunity we had was customers are gonna come and look at Ford uh, showrooms. And at the time we were just becoming increasingly competitive with with cars, you know, we'd always been strong in in uh, trucks. Customers al- had always come into, you know, if they're in the truck market, they were always going to come into a Ford showroom to have a, a a good look at what the latest Ford truck or SUV was. We were, you know, latterly weaker in cars. I think the opportunity we had was as our, as our new cars were arriving in the showrooms, people wanted to look at Ford because we were different.
0: There's no question that Ford's got a good buzz going about it right now. Your, your quality numbers look sensational, top of the list for yep. a mass manufacturer. As you indicated, you've got exciting new products. People are coming in. But the questions that, that are raised about Ford largely center on the high level of debt that the company has. This year, so far, you've paid down, I think, $7 billion in debt in, in the first six months. Can you keep
1: that rate of pay down going? Well, I'm not, I'm not okay. going to predict the, the rate, um, because then I'd have to issue an 8K, which would upset my boss. Um, but, but we've said by, you know, at the moment we're, we have uh, a negative net cash. So we have a net debt position. So that's gross cash, less gross debt of $5.4 billion. We've said uh, by the end of uh, next year, we'll be into positive net cash. So our, our gross cash will exceed our gross debt. Um, so, you know, there's a trajectory that we're on. Uh, it's it's important uh, to us to to uh, pay back our debt and, and uh, repair the balance sheet, which has been heavily stressed in the last couple of years. But but I think you have to put it in perspective. Of that's one of our priorities, and other priorities to keep the the uh, product uh, pipeline full. I mean I think one of the reasons that that we're seeing what what we're seeing from Ford at the moment is that in the really tough times. Um, we actually made a decision we were going to continue to invest in in uh, new product because we didn't want just to survive the, the the recession. We wanted to be able to prosper as we came out of the recession. So we've continued to invest heavily in product and are continuing to do so. And then uh, then the other you know major call on our capital is to uh, is to grow. Um, you know in in the markets that that are growing really fast. You know Asia Pacific is where. We we uh, haven't been focused so much because of our own internal problems. Asia Pacific is uh, very hot. I mean, the China market is growing rapidly. The Indian market has just taken off as as customers are able to afford more cars. Uh, even in South America, where we've been very successful, we see opportunities that, that there will be more growth in Brazil, and we want to participate in that. So. Paying back our debt is very important, but making sure we keep the right balance of paying back our debt, investing in products, and investing in growth is, is one of the things we have a lot of discussion about.
0: In the priority there, though, if if I look at the $7 billion that you've paid down, you've got $28 billion in debt. It looks to me that it would be fairly easy for the company to pay off all this debt in three to four years' time.
1: Well, we'll never pay off all our debt. I think our balance sheet will, will always have some debt in it, because that, that's an uh, efficient way to finance the company. But... Um, we want to improve our, our uh, balance sheet substantially, and we're going to do it over the over the next few years. And I'm not going to predict exactly when, because um, you know it obviously will be dependent upon our our ability to generate positive operating cash flow. I mean that you know the only way you can really pay back debt is by by uh, generating positive cash flow. So, and generating positive cash flow is dependent upon the economic environment. As if if we continue to see the s- slow recovery that we're that we're expecting, you know, we'll have a, a stronger year next year and you know, this is a continued improvement business.
2: Given all the growth in Asia Pacific, do you uh sometimes wish that you still had a, the closer relationship with Mazda that you had back when you ran the company a few years ago? Would that help you in uh expanding in Asia Pacific
1: today? Um well Actually, we still have just as close a relationship with Mazda. So it just isn't isn't the financial relationship it was. You know, in in our very difficult uh, circumstances, we had to uh, sell down our our share in them from um, over thirty three percent to we're now at about um, eleven the, percent. The the working relationship between the two companies is still very close. Um, we were going. We have some joint pro uh, programs. You know. Products and uh, manufacturing facilities around Asia; those are continuing for the most part. Um, we still have a close working relationship between our, our engineering teams, for example. But we're, all, you know, in many markets of the world, we're competing. So mm-hmm. where where we find things that work to boast both our benefits, we we work together. If we if if not if we don't see a, a mutual benefit, then then it's harder to make it work.
2: It would seem, though, that it's harder to see a mutual benefit uh, in in the sense that with a global car company, it's often pretty hard to get everyone to be on the same page and and cooperate, even when you own every part of these divisions, lock, stock, and barrel, and you can crack the whip. Once you pull away from that, achieving the cooperation would seem to be more difficult. Has that not been an
1: issue at all? Well, I mean, those things are always somewhat of an issue. Actually, the cooperation with we're spending the most amount of time on is 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 running the company as one Ford. Mm. Um, you know we were four different companies really. You know South America, North America, Europe, and Asia Pacific. Um, what one of the you know the intended consequences by Alan of driving the, the business together was helped tremendously by the crisis because as we ended up with you know much less available capital, uh, it sort of really helped us accelerate coming together because when you're really you know, hard up, um, if the choice is I'm either going to do a joint program with the rest of Ford or I'm not going to be able to afford to do a program at all, it's much easier to to, to, to make one Ford stick. Now, that was accept- I think it was a, ca- a good catalyst, um, but we're, we're clearly now working in a completely different fashion too. You know, three or four years ago, where we were these four separate companies. So that's the thing we're we're working on on so hard. And I think you can, I think the customers beginning to see the benefits. I mean, the customers beginning to see the uh, benefits in in um, North America with with the, the small cars, as we've discussed. We're, for example, in in Europe, we're seeing benefits of EcoBoost engines and and uh, more availability of automatic transmissions, which was hard to justify when you were developing cars just for Europe. Mm if you're developing cars and calibrating them for the world, then Europe has has a bigger portfolio. Uh, Asia Pacific, who previously was reliant on, on uh, just on Europe for product, uh, and Asia Pacific always wanted great gas engines with great automatic transmissions, something that, that wasn't as high on uh, Europe's priority list because they wanted great diesel engines and great manual transmissions. Now one Ford is delivering a better sort of palette of products to all the regions. And, and, you know, we're fortunate to have Derek Kuzak, who's worked with Mazda, been based in Europe for a, a, a long time, knows the global requirements. Uh, and I think his discipline of implementing uh, products that aren't a compromise anywhere in the world, do match customer uh, requirements, is a huge asset to us.
3: Hmm. What about on the cost side, Lewis? You've taken a, a lot of uh, jobs and uh, out of the system. You've taken uh, a lot of production out of the system. Are you right sized at this point? Uh, and how does this relate to the rest of the industry? Because there's still, by most people's opinion, too much capacity in North America.
1: Well, we are. Um, you know, our, our, our plan is right sized. We still have uh, uh, some small elements of the plan to complete as as uh, some product lines. Uh, Reach the end of their natural course. We have uh, two assembly plants to close in North America still Uh, All all announced the workforce know about and making the appropriate plans, but then I think our our, uh, capacity will be About right-sized for the way we expect the industry to be. Uh, I think we're more or less there in uh, in uh, Europe we're pretty close in in South America and uh, In Asia Pacific it's a different problem. We don't have enough capacity in Asia Pacific and you know, we've announced capacity expansions in various countries in Asia. Once you close those two plants, if uh, business in the
2: U.S. and Europe starts picking up uh, and you have to start adding production capacity, have you figured out the strategy? Are you going to open plants, run more overtime, try and, you know, resist capital investment as much as possible, or is there a
1: different approach? Uh, I I don't think we'll be building new plants. I think we'll be um you know, sweating the assets we have, we'll be adding shifts, working overtime, uh, being creative. Um, you know, this is a a business that naturally has a a, a very high bre- break-even point because of the amount of capital investment it requires. We want to keep the break-even point as as uh, under control as we can, because uh, what we don't want to do is grow our assets to a to a stage where, you know, any small wobble in the economy uh, means we. We start losing large amounts of money again. I
0: want to go back to Mazda a minute because Ford's been allied with Mazda. I think since the late nineteen seventies. Uh, over time, the company built up uh, an ownership position. The thirty three percent, as you know, gives them gave Ford control. Now you are down to eleven percent or so, and I've described it as a slow motion divorce. I, I really see the company separating. Uh, in the sense that in China, you had a joint venture together. You've separated that. Chang'an Motors is now separate between Ford and Mazda. Well, we're in the process of separating. It's or, or not in the separate. process, okay, yeah. or processes, I might say. When I look at the Ford Fiesta versus the Mazda 2, ostensibly built off the same platform, yeah. Mazda says there's only four common parts between the cars, to which I say, then why even share a platform? And uh, I just see, in fact, there were rumors out early uh, this year that... Uh, Mazda may have approached Toyota or Toyota Mazda to share a platform. And I'm, I'm just wondering, where does this relationship go in the future when it just seems to be going farther and farther apart?
1: Well, um, it, it will go the way it's been going. Um, where we see uh, mutual opportunities, we'll work on them. Where we don't see mutual opportunity, we won't. Um, you know, the world's very different from, from 30 years ago. Uh, Mazda is a much, much stronger company than it was. It, it's... Uh, it's it's well managed it's got a great product portfolio um and we ha- as i say we have a great working relationship with them but but we've always worked on the basis that um if we couldn't make something work for both our benefit we wouldn't do it speaking at the
2: other end of the market uh there's a lot of profit to be made in luxury cars obviously bigger margin there and it's particularly a nice business if you can make a luxury car out of one of the mainstream cars and all the current Lincoln models are basically enhanced Fords in one fashion or another. Uh, but there's an issue there. You know, Lincoln has kind of been struggling for a while. It now seems to have some direction. Does it need more distinct products and unique products to actually be an authentic luxury brand? And are you willing to open the purse strings for that?
1: Well, we're certainly willing to open the purse strings. You know, we've, we've said um, we're going to have a substantial investment in lincoln i can't remember the num- number seven uh new or refresh or, or major change programs in the next I think, four years um and and they will be distinct um you know I, one of the things that we've been working very hard on first of all with ford is to say what does the ford brand stand for and make sure that all our cars and trucks crossovers SUVs uh, whatever uh, match what we call the Ford DNA. So, you know, you recognise the steering characteristics, you recognise the ride characteristics, you recognise the ergonomics, all those elements, and, and you recognise the design themes. We're doing exactly the same for Lincoln. We want Lincoln uh, to be to have its own brand DNA, a luxury brand DNA, and we will develop cars to match that requirement. But
2: will they be unique cars? Because you, know, you look at the luxury landscape, and BMWs and Mercedes are not gussied up cheap or anything. Uh, Audis are often you know, Volkswagen based, and they've made that work. Uh, but Cadillac, the successful uh, the CTS, is not based on anything else. Uh, do you see any totally ground up, unique uh, Lincolns in order to uh, compete there?
1: Well, as we roll them out, we'll. We'll tell you.
0: Okay. <laughs> and with that, we're going to have to wrap this up. But Lewis Booth, thanks so much for coming on Autoline Detroit. Great having you here. Bill Vlasic from The New York Times. Chuba great having you. And I'll be back in a moment with some closing thoughts. As I mentioned at the top of today's show, there's just too much to talk about when you get somebody like Lewis Booth to come on the show. We're going to be back here at the same time, same place, to do the second part of this program next week. By the way, if you need more than a weekly dose of automotive information, check out AutoLine Daily. Just as the name implies, it's a daily report of the top news from the global automotive industry. It's fun, it's informative, and it'll keep you up to date on the latest developments in the business. Check it out at AutoLineDaily.com. But that brings us to the end of this show. Thanks for watching and join us again next week for part two of my interview with Gainesville.